welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. study and I pray and I prepare for the Sunday morning message and I do some other things. I think about where we want the church to be and the leadership of the church. And I was sitting, uh, sitting in the classroom and I was looking, actually I was watching a video, but I, it was studying. It was studying, Brother Larry. I was looking at a video and I was studying on this, this message and some of the examples I wanted to use. And Brother Larry came into the room and after scaring me half to death by slapping the table, I didn't know anybody was in the building, by slapping the table. And we talked for a little while and, and my Myself as the pastor, I was doing my role. I was preparing for the spiritual leadership of the church. Brother Larry, as a deacon, was doing his role. He was leaving at that moment to go track down some bill, I forgot what it was, that had been miscommunicated or mischarged or something like that. So he was taking care of the needs of the church, the care of members, the property of the church, which allowed me to continue to, uh, to focus on, instead of having to go track down that bill, to focus on the spiritual leadership of the church. Now, this is something that most people may not grasp, is that the deacon and the pastor, the deacons and the pastors of a church, they're equal. A lot of times, you know, people kind of think, well, the deacons are one thing and the pastors this. Now, the deacons and the pastors are equal in their task of leadership of the church. They're just leading in different aspects of the church. So it's kind of like this. I know some of you are big football fans, and some of you couldn't tell a football from a baseball, and that's okay, but I think we can all get this analogy. Like, for a football team, and we'll just talk about offense. Like, you've got to have a quarterback. That's the person that's going to throw the ball. You've got to have a running back. That's the person they hand the ball to, and he takes off running. You've got to have wide receivers. They're the people that catch the ball if the quarterback throws it. And then you've got the offensive line who stand there, and they kind of make all the holes for people to run through. That's, that's the way football works. And in that, some people are going to have their name called more than others. The quarterback is, is going to get a lot more attention because he touches the ball every single time it is snapped. The running back's going to get a lot of attention because he's going to make two yards and three yards, and he's going to be continually have his name called again and again and again for his role. The wide receivers are going to catch the ball, and they're going to make an 80-yard touchdown, at least we can hope, Razorback fans. That's what's going to happen this year, right? That, that's all fine, but nobody ever talks about the offensive line. Well, are they less important than they are? Are they less important than the quarterback and the wide receivers and the running backs? Well, if you keep up with Arkansas football the past two years, you know the importance of an offensive line because we haven't had one, right? Like those people are so important and they're all equal parts of that same team. They all have their own job and their own position. They all work in the same way. And just the same way, just the same way, your pastors, your deacons, all leadership positions in the church are equal parts of leadership, but they work together in different roles. I thought this morning, I know that we have a lot of you that have been visiting with us or that you're new to the church. I thought that it might be a good time while we talked about this for you guys to just make sure that we know everybody knows who the deacons are. So if you have problems, you can take it to them and not me. No, I'm kidding. But uh, just so that you know who our deacons are is over here, the shiny head gentleman in the red, uh, red shirt. And that's Brother Roy. He's um, one of our deacons. I can call him shiny head because he's my grandpa. Uh, Brother Larry right here in the blue shirt is one of our deacons. And Brother Norman up there in the sound booth is also one of our deacons. These are the men that the church have set aside to accomplish this role of the administration and the leadership of the church in that way. I also want to mention Brother Scott Williams, who is already hanging his head because he knew it was coming over here in the blue shirt next to the very tall teenager who we have set aside to be... Uh, to be in view of being a deacon. And what that means is that after a period of time of watching him, the church will make a decision on whether or not to put him into that role, probably in January. 
Now, in our context, I want you to know how our pastor deacon team works together in the leadership of this church. This is something that we do, but it's never been advertised. And as we were drawing down into this, I just really felt like this is something we need to talk about. In the context of our church, I want you guys to know that your pastor and your deacons meet weekly. Every single week, we come together and we meet as a leadership team for this church for three purposes. The first purpose is, is that we pray together. Every man in that room sits down and we pray openly. We pray together for this church. We pray for the growth, both physical and spiritual growth of those in the church. We pray for God to use us for salvations. We pray for unity in this church, safety, and we pray for wisdom and leadership in everything that we do. It's very important, and I believe that a church should have leaders that gather together to pray over the church and over decisions, not just people that do what they want to do, and we do do that. Secondly, we discuss vision. We talk about plans for the church for the future, things that maybe are not concrete, but we talk about where, where would we like to see this church be in one year and in five years and in 10 years. We talk about finances. We talk about the decisions of what we're going to do. We're going to talk about who we think might be a good leadership or good in a leadership position. And the last thing is we discuss and make decisions together as a team supporting each other. Nothing that happens in this church that is a decision made by leadership or a recommendation made by leadership in a business meeting ever comes from me. 99.9% .9 of that goes through that leadership team where we sit down and we pray over it and we talk about it together. Now that's not necessarily part of the biblical text this morning, but I wanted you guys to know, because I've never announced it, that that is how we work together. And the last thing I'll say about this is I just want you guys to know that I have complete and ultimate faith in the heart and the spirit and in the love for this church that our three sitting deacons have. And I encourage you to have the same. They're wonderful men of God. They're very wise. They have been a huge asset to me as a young pastor in this church. I'm going to start crying. I love them that much. I think very, very highly of them. If you don't know them or maybe you don't know them very well, I would just encourage you to have that same amount of faith in them because they are wonderful men of God. I have that same level of admiration and faith in Brother Scott as he is preparing to set aside and possibly step into that role and his wisdom and his ability to step into that position and be a good fit for this church in that. I would also encourage you to do that. And the fact that he's hanging his head when I'm talking about him tells you why I feel that way. So, this service position of the deacons, continuing back into our message, back into the text, you notice that the service position of the deacon had requirements. The apostles didn't say, yeah, go find somebody to take care of it. You go, 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 yeah, you guys figure it out amongst yourself. They gave very specific instructions of what they wanted. They said, we want men who are, number one, good report. They have good report, which that just means a good reputation. That means within the church and within people, people know who they are. People respect them. People believe in their ability to lead and in their wisdom. People believe in their faith. Number two, we want men who are full of the Holy Spirit. And all that means is that people who it is evident that God is working in their life. It is not the oldest church member. It is not who has been at church the longest or who gives the most money. It is people who it is evident that you can see that God is growing and changing them, that they have a daily relationship with God. And number three is that they are full of wisdom, which we will talk about more here in a little bit, which is God-given insight. And that is what the apostles originally addressed the church to do. Find men who fit these three criteria. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, it lists some more qualifications for us. They cannot be addicted to anything. They cannot be greedy. They must be blameless, which means living a Christian life, not a perfect life, because that's not possible. 
They must be a one-woman man, meaning that they are married to one and only one woman. They must be the biblical leader in their household. They cannot be drunk. They cannot be of sound faith. Or they have to be, whoop, almost messed that up, didn't I? They have to be of sound faith. They have to have a godly wife. And they cannot be double-tongued, which means they can't say one thing here and there. And all of these in the position of pastor and deacon apply to men. So as we look at Brother Scott for the future, these are the things we're looking for him, evidence of this in his life. Now, let me go ahead and, and say that all of those are important. I would never say, I would never say that nothing in the Bible is unimportant or that some things in the Bible are less important. But I do think there's something here that is important that we might often look over. So for the context of today, maybe more important to what we're looking at in our scripture in Acts 6. What qualifications were not listed? Think about the things that they could have required, but they didn't. In this context, the, the apostles did not ask for Grecians or Hebrews. They didn't say a man of a certain age. They didn't say a man of a certain race or a language. They didn't say he had to have supernatural powers, that he had to be rich, that he had to be a big giver to the church, that he had to be a king. They said, go pick from the congregation of people seven ordinary men who have the, the power of Christ displayed in their life. Seven ordinary men. As a matter of fact, all of the qualifications, all of the qualifications that are put on the deacons are really things that should be all of us. All the apostles really said is, make sure you find somebody who's living as you're called to live. It's not just that the deacons are held to a higher standard or the pastor is held to a higher standard. That's what we're all supposed to live. Just make sure that when you put people in leadership positions that they live by those standards. Now, the question is, why the qualifications? Like, why did they say, you know, in order to be this, that you have to do this? A deacon literally means, it's literally the word servant is all it means, that these are the servants of the church. Why, why do we have these qualifications for servants? As a matter of fact, every qualification for a pastor is required of deacons except for one, and that is the gift of teaching. And some of our deacons are very good teachers, but they don't have to be. So everything that the disciples said is what they would expect out of a pastor, what the Bible requires out of a pastor. Why are the qualifications for these deacons, for these seven men, so high? Why, why does it have to be that way? Why, why can't you just say, hey, this, this guy's going to deliver some money and he's going to take care of some widows. Why, why do they have to be full of wisdom? Well, Jesus, Jesus loves to flip things upside down. And Jesus said this about his church. The disciples were arguing with each other about who was going to be the greatest. I'm going to be the best. I'm going to be in charge. Jesus is going to put me in the charge. I'm number one. And they went to Jesus and they go, hey, who's number one? He goes, we know it's, we know it's not Matthew, right? It's me. Like, who is it, Jesus? And this is what Jesus said to him. He said, in the kingdom of God, the first is last. And the last is first. What that means is that this is completely opposite of what the world tells us. The world tells us that your leaders, that those that are first, are going to be the ones that make lots of money. They're going to be the ones who are very popular. They're going to be the ones who have strong leadership abilities, who are, success, or who, are, who are successful in everything they do. But Jesus said, no, 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 in my kingdom and in thus my church that I'm going to build, the, the, the lowly and the meek and the humble and the servants, those will be the leaders because those are the attributes that are important in the kingdom of God. And, and so as we look at this leadership position of deacons, what Jesus tells us is that I want, I want the servants, I want the humble and the meek, not, not the ones who get the attention of the world, but the ones who would be left out by the world. They're the ones, they're the ones who will be in charge. Our next take-home truth is this, is that leadership positions are by definition servant positions. 
I'm going to say that again. There's a couple things I really want to emphasize in that. Leadership positions within a church are by definition servant positions. If you are in any kind of a role in a church, you are a servant. It does not make you bigger or better than anybody. That means that you're, you're lower than everybody else. You put everybody else before you when you become a pastor or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or a musician. It doesn't matter that your goal when you come here is to put others before you. And so they pick these men and verses five through eight tells us about this. So, and the saying, this is after the apostles told them, go pick your seven men so that we can continue in our ministry. And the saying pleased the whole multitude and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip and Prochorus and uh, Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, I got that one, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly and the great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Keep your Bibles open. We're coming back to that. So this introduces us to the seven men that were chosen. Only two of these are going to have any more details recorded about them in Acts, these two. Specifically, we're going to look at Stephen and, and his ministry. Listen to verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. So here's this deacon. He's listed first. He has a couple of other things put there about him that the others don't have about them. Stephen is a man of God without a doubt. And I can say that, one, because he fits the biblical criteria to be a deacon, that he was chosen in this. But two, it says that in his spare time, he's going out in the world and he has the power to do miracles and wonders. And in the public, this is gathering attention. This gives a little credence to his saying. And this is something that God does in the Bible that he allows humans to work with his power to get people's attention. This is something that God did in the early church. He authenticated the ministry of the apostles and of the early church by giving them powers that nobody else would have. God's done this a bunch of times in the Bible. If you go back to the book of Exodus, in there there's a man named Moses. Moses comes and he speaks to the king of Egypt. He says, I have a message from God. Which one? No, the only God, the only God that matters. I have a message. And, and Pharaoh goes, oh yeah, well, what makes you think you've got a message from God? You're just a man. You're a nobody. And God gave Moses the power to, to do miracles. Or maybe I should say God did miracles through Moses. He takes a staff. He throws it down. It turns into a snake. He, 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 he uh, calls down the plagues. Or not calls them down, but he, he predicts the plagues. And in that, Pharaoh goes, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. Anybody that can do those things must have the power of God behind him. We see this again in the story of Elijah when he's dealing with Ahab and Jezebel, that Elijah has this power to call down miracles from God. He does all kinds of things. He says it's not going to rain. It doesn't rain. He says it's going to rain. It rains. He calls down fire from heaven. He brings somebody back from the dead. That brings a little credence when somebody says, hey, God sent me and I can prove it. Come back to life right? And God does this in the early church with the disciples. He gives them powers to do wonders and miracles so Israel can see when they come up to him and say, hey, we, we know something about God that you don't know, and people are like, prove it. Because I mean, think about what you're going out into the world and saying, it's normal to us, but in Israel, wouldn't it have been different? Like, you're out there, it's like, hey, heard about Jesus? And like, the carpenter? Oh yeah, the carpenter. They killed him. Came back to life by himself. People think you're crazy. What if I stood up here like, guys, this is so important. God is doing some work. I saw Abraham Lincoln this week. Seriously, they went and checked the grave. It was just dug open. He dug himself out. He's walking around. Abraham Lincoln's back to life. Y'all think I was nuts. 
But all of a sudden, you walk into a place and there's a leper there and you heal that leper and go, God gave me that power. Oh yeah, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's the proof. That's the authentication of it. And so it gives authentication to the message of Jesus Christ. That, <clears throat> that he was raised from the dead. Now, I want to be clear that this is something that happened in the early church, and Jesus spread his message the, whole, the same way. If you look at Jesus' early ministry, he would, he would lay out uh, miracles in front of people, and that would open up opportunities for people to gather around him and teach. That's how Jesus got attention as well. This no longer works this way in today's world. In fact, I want to tell you to be very extremely careful if you walk up to somebody and they say they've got some kind of a gift to do miracles or healing or something like that, be very careful because God no longer works that way. God no longer has to work that way. And be very careful, especially of those men on TV that want you to send money for a miracle. Those guys are getting rich. That's not what it is. But be very careful of things. God works in a different way today. The proof now, that what authenticates the message of Christianity now is you. Let that sink in for a second. You've got a little bit of a responsibility here. The early church, they got to go out and heal people. They got to go out and do miracles and wonders in front of people. You know what takes the place of that now? Your life. That's, that's what authenticates the ministry of Jesus. That's what authenticates the message of Jesus Christ. You are the miracle that God sends to the world now. The fact that, that you're ordinary, but you don't behave in an ordinary day. Why? The, the way that we act when we love our neighbor for no other reason than because Christ told us to. It's not ordinary, but it's a miracle that we can do it. The way that we love and serve our enemies when they attack us and we pray for them, that's not ordinary. That's a miracle that you and I can do that. The miracle that God sends to the world now to authenticate his ministry is the change in your life. Now, Stephen, on the other hand, Stephen had that plus this power to gather attention. Listen to what happens in verses 9 and 10. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and the Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and them of Sicilia and Asia disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Highlight that verse if you're a highlighter. Then they stubborn, uh, stubborn men which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So here's Stephen. Here Stephen is out doing these things. And of course this draws attention to himself because he doesn't just walk by and go, you're healed, have a great day. Stephen goes, boom, you're healed. And he's like, listen, this is the power of Jesus Christ, a carpenter who walked the face of the earth. He was fully man and fully God and they tried to kill him and they couldn't keep him in a grave because he was God and he died for your sins so that you could have eternity with him and so that he could restore you and have you back. That's what Stephen was doing. And as the crowds draw around him, people begin to argue with him. They begin to argue with him about this message of Jesus Christ. And they can't win. Verse 10 says they could not resist the wisdom by which he spoke. What that means is they can't win the argument. It doesn't matter what they throw at him, they can't win the argument with him. And I have to ask why. Was Stephen just a, a, a master person to argue with? Like, did he, was he just that smart? But the Bible tells us that what they could not resist was not his argument ability. They said, they can't resist the spirit by which he spoke. What does that mean? Well, in the Bible, God exists, not in the Bible, but the Bible tells us that God exists as three persons. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, we talk about him a lot, but the one that we don't mention a lot, especially in a Baptist church, is God the Holy Spirit, he the Holy Spirit, a person. And this Holy Spirit is at work. When Jesus left, he said, I will send to you the Comforter. I will send to you the Holy Spirit. 
And the Holy Spirit is constantly at work in our world. I really believe that he is at work in our church at this exact moment. He is around all of the time. And when we are saved, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. That's, that's a crazy thing to think about. But if you think about it, what does the Bible say? Your body is a temple. It is the place where God dwells on earth. The Holy Spirit dwells within me. It dwells within you if you've given your life to Christ. It is a true part of being a Christian. And when Stephen speaks, he's not speaking on his own. He's not talking from his own knowledge or his own wisdom, what he knows. What, what he's talking from is knowledge and wisdom given to him by the Holy Spirit, by God himself. Now, first off, let's just pause for a second and reflect on the intelligence of these people who come up to the guy who's creating miracles with God's power and say, you don't know anything about God. They're not very smart. But when they argue with him, they're not arguing with him, they're arguing with God in him. Now, you may not be able to heal people or create miracles, but the Holy Spirit still gives us wisdom the same way, the same way that the Holy Spirit gave Stephen wisdom. Without going into too many details, I, I had an opportunity with a friend of mine for several weeks to help counsel him through some things in his life and, and um, kind of bring him back to maybe a closer to God place and, and help him work through a very tough time in his life. And, and it really amazed me is these conversations between me and him would just happen randomly, like every two weeks, maybe a week sometimes. And before the conversation would happen for like, for like three days, I'd just be like, oh, you know what? He's fixing to come to me and he's gonna have this problem. And then I would just instinctively know, well, I address that problem and I explain that problem and I counsel him in this way. And sure enough, after two or three days, after two or three days, he would come and he'd be like, here's what I'm dealing with. And I'm like, well, I've got the answer. I was prepared for it. It's the wisdom of the Holy Spirit given. And that's not something God gives to pastors. That's, that's to all of us. You may not have experienced it in quite that way, but God still works in that way. And so when these people are arguing, they're not arguing with Stephen, they're arguing with God. Now, for you married people, before you go home and use that on your spouse, right? Like, I'm speaking with the wisdom of God and you're arguing with me. Every time you think you're right in an argument does not mean that God is speaking wisdom through you. That's not true, okay? But there are times when God puts wisdom in us, especially when it's for his purpose. Now, wisdom was a requirement for the deacons, and, and we just want to talk about wisdom for a second. Like, what is wisdom? Because I bet if most of you thought, what is wisdom, and you had to describe it, most of us would say wisdom is, is being smart, being intelligent, knowing the answers to things. And so we've got a couple of things here that we want to talk about. Number one, on our next Take Home Truth, wisdom is a gift from God. James 1.15 says that if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God for it. Wisdom is something that comes from God. Now, this is different than knowledge, what we usually deal with. Knowledge is something we learn from experience. I've learned when my car starts making a funny noise, I better turn it off or it's about to break. That's, that's something from experience. That's knowledge. Wisdom, wisdom is the, and this is point B of that take-home truth, the ability to discern what is right and true. And so as these accusers are arguing with Stephen, they're arguing with their experiences, but Stephen is arguing with a God-given ability to see the truth. So as these people arguing with him are, are losing, they begin to change the rules. You guys ever played a game with a, a kid and they're losing and the rules start to change? You guys ever played a game with an adult and they do the same thing? 
Last week, my wife and I was both wore out. We're back at work this week. We're tired, and it's time for Oakley's bath. And, and she goes, I don't want to do it tonight. I, go, I don't want to give her a bath tonight. So we rock, paper, scissors for her. You guys know that. And my wife is more crafty than she looks. She's pretty, and she's cute, and she's like, glow. She's, she's smart, right? And she beat me on the first one, the first rock, paper, scissors. I lost. I'm going to give the baby a bath. Guess what I said? Two out of three. Two out of three. Change rules. That was the plan the whole time, right? I ended up winning that. I, I confess to you, I cheated my wife out of that bath time. Ended up giving the baby. But that's, that's what happened to these people. They couldn't beat Stephen in an argument, so they begin to change the rules. Listen to verse... Uh, lost my place here. Listen to the rest of these verses. We're going to start at verse 12. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. And they set up false witnesses which said, This man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Now as we look at this, they change the rules on Stephen. And they accuse him of blasphemy. And they drag him before the council. Real quick, the council is what we call the Sanhedrin. Every city would have had part of this court system that was a religious court within Israel. Every city had one that uh, had 21 judges in it. And then there was the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, which had 71 members. And this was the legal system. So Stephen was drugged before these men and they accused him of blasphemy, an offense punishable by death. And I want to look at the pattern in Stephen. Because Stephen is not acting like an ordinary man at this moment. Not the fact that he's creating miracles, the way that he handles this. He, he's acting like somebody that he's not. He's acting exactly like somebody else that we study a lot. He's acting a lot like Christ in the way that he handles this. And I think what we're going to see in Stephen is that his ordinary has been changed as he came into contact with the person of Christ. See, this is the process of becoming a Christian, is that we begin to act like Christ. I'm going to say that again. The process of becoming a Christian is we begin to change and act like Jesus Christ. It's very important for us as we go forward to know that. 1 John 2, 6 says that he that saith he abideth in him, that he is you, and the, the second him is Jesus. So you that saith you abide in Jesus ought also to walk even as he, Jesus, walked. In Christ, we become like Christ. And we see these changes in Stephen's. It's more than religion. Stephen's not just changing like how he acts and how he appears to people. He's changing his identity. So real quick, we're going to finish up. Stephen begins to A, speak with the boldness of Christ. It's not normal for a person to have an unpopular message, the kind of message that will get you to lose your job, the kind of message that will have your friends outcast you, the kind of message that can have you put to death and to walk around the streets of the city that you live in saying, I believe this whether you believe it or not. Yeah, that's what Stephen did. Stephen did exactly what Jesus Christ did. He walked around with an unpopular message, speaking from the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And in this, he begins to, as he changes, he begins to, to take on the, the message and the mission of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ told us his mission. He put it very simply, why are you here? I have come to seek and save that which is lost. That's what Jesus came here for. And yet, as we see in Stephen, as he begins to become more like Christ and act like somebody else, we see that he is seeking to see saved what is lost. He can't save people, but that's his mission. As his mission aligns with Jesus, his identity begins to align with Jesus. Point B is Stephen begins to be hated like Jesus. That's the message that's going to bring us back to church next week. Come to church. Be like Jesus. Everybody will hate you. But that's what Stephen did. 
As Stephen began to become like Jesus, and we see the same thing happen to Stephen that happened to Jesus. He was drugged in front of the council. He was accused of blasphemy, and he was judged because his identity becomes one and the same with Jesus Christ. Now listen, I did not say he became Jesus Christ. I did not say he became God. I said his identity becomes the same as Jesus Christ's identity became. And what that means is, is that Stephen was no longer Stephen. Stephen's identity was Christ in him and him in Christ. And that's what our identity in this church should be, is Christ in us and us in Christ. And I know I'm running just a little bit long, but we're going to keep rolling because this is really important. This is the core of Christianity. I had that so wrong in my life for so long that the identity of being a Christian is, or the core of Christianity is my identity. Don't be like me and think that, that the core of Christianity is sitting around and watching your friends drink alcohol and saying, well, I can do without that. That's not the core of Christianity. Don't, don't think the, the core of Christianity is saying, oh, I'm gonna wait till I get married to have sex. That's not the core of Christianity. Don't, don't be like me. The, the core of Christianity is not morality. It's not following rules. The core of Christianity is a change in your identity and who you are that you begin to identify everything about yourself through the two filters, me and Christ and Christ and me. And Stephen, as he begins to identify that even the world begins to see his changed identity, they begin to identify him with Jesus Christ. Verse 15, we're almost done. Listen to what happened. After everybody's talking, they all looked at him. And it says, And all that sat in the council looked steadfastly on him and saw his face as if it had been the face of an angel. So some people look at this and say, oh, he had an angel face. He was glowing. It's a supernatural event. But I don't think that's what it means. I may be wrong, but I don't think that's what it means. I think what that means is they look at Stephen. He's in this council of people that are planning to kill him. They're lying against him. They're bringing in false witnesses that are saying things. How would you respond in that moment? Somebody brought in somebody and they're putting you on trial and they had your best friend come in there and said, I saw that them, they steal things from work. You're being put on trial and people are saying, oh yeah, I saw what they did, how they mistreated a woman or a child. I would jump up and I would scream, no, you're lying, that's not it, but not Stephen. Stephen's sitting there with the face of an angel. And what that means is that Stephen's not scared. Stephen, this is the time to be scared, brother. These people are gonna kill you. But Stephen's not scared. How could an ordinary man go to this trial and be on trial for his life and stand there without fear, without anger, with an opposition that was crafted to kill him, the same opposition that killed Christ? He had no fear. That's not ordinary. Which brings us to our last point. As Stephen began to show the peace of Christ. In Luke 23... In Luke 23, live if you want to come up here. In Luke 23, there's a story that's very similar to the trial of Stephen. It's the trial of Jesus Christ. They brought false witnesses around him. They accused him of saying things that he didn't say. They put him on trial in front of everybody. They called him everything under the sun, and he was on trial for his life, about to lose his life. And Jesus Christ, when the, when the story turns to a picture of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ stands there quietly, accepting his fate, going to the cross, and, and he accepted it for you. And listen to me very carefully. We need to say this as a church. Jesus Christ did not come die to get you heaven. Jesus Christ come and died to restore you to himself. It's not about, do I get to go to the fun place or the bad place when I die? It's about getting to have the identity of Christ and restoring us to what he built us to be. So this morning, I'm gonna issue this challenge. Has your ordinary changed? Are you just religious in the fact that you come to church and that you have a few rules and that you change your outer appearance? Or has your identity changed where what's important to you is Christ in me and me in Christ? 
There's people sitting in here today that have never made that decision. Maybe, maybe they decided to start going to church or acting good, but they never, never come to know Christ. This morning, I want to invite you to accept that gift that Jesus Christ paid his life for so that you could have him and he could have you. I'll tell you from experience, I can't live without it. I would love for you to make a decision today. I don't care what it is. This is open to you for prayer. I'll talk with you. I'll pray with you. I'll explain to you more how to put your faith in Christ. But don't leave here the same way that you walked in. It's time to quit that. It's time to let ourselves be changed and for a new ordinary. 